0: Okay, Rabotai, we are now October 27th, starting our third class on basic themes in the book of Bereshit itself. Our goal is to focus on these basic themes and see them as an entree as to what the important ideas are throughout the entire Torah, and rightfully so. It makes sense to say that we're going to find in the opening chapters of Bereshit is going to serve as the basis and foundation of what it means to be actually a Jewish person. The first point that we had to make two weeks ago and last week, is that Torah is a specific kind of literature. It's literature that actually tries to do the impossible. It tries to, on its first level, to take that idea which is the most abstract notion, to take that which is unportrayable and to actually portray that which is unportrayable. To what idea am I referring to? to the idea of God. Boreh Olam. Kadosh Baruch Hu, The Almighty. Multiple names for God Himself. And Torah understands that in order to achieve a viable society, if that were, let's, just, let's say, the goal of what Torah is really all about, there has to be some kind of statement as to who God is and what God is. To take that most abstract idea, concept imaginable and actually to make it into a usable, viable concept within the human context to create society. Yet, on the other hand, without by virtue of doing that, creating a idol of God. That's been the downfall of mankind where they've attempted to take the unimaginable, limitless, incomprehensible being that we call God, if in, de- in fact God is a being, don't know what God is, as we'll see in a few minutes, and not to make that into idolatry. What's idolatry? It's putting limits on God. Bore Olam is defined as that which is beyond limits, and idolatry is saying God is only this, limited. In the pagan world, God is a victim, one might say, of the natural order. The natural order preceded God, and the gods in Canaanite, Greek, and Roman mythology are born from the natural order. They're born. Gods are born from the natural order. We see over here, by extreme contrast, Bore Olam precedes the natural order. God's the creator of the natural order. And yet, that idea is so uncomfortable that even perhaps one of the most sophisticated thinkers in the last five hundred years, Spinoza, said, no, I see God as what? As nature. Dios es natura. God is nature. We call that pantheism. Pantheism means God is all over. God is nature. We say, no, God created nature. And it's interesting that though Spinoza was an incredibly abstract, brilliant mind, and a devotee, actually, of the Rambam as well, could not deal with that notion. It was too abstract, even, for him. At the end, he, the most he can get and say is that God is the natural order, as opposed to above and beyond the creator of the natural order. To assert that God is unlimited, inconceivable, incomprehensible, might almost place him out of the reaches of of the population. God becomes so abstract that God is not a viable option as that which has an effect on our lives. So we have to straddle both of these worlds by portraying God in a usable fashion without idolatrizing Hashem Himself. On the other hand, fully appreciating that God is beyond comprehension. That's a mouthful very difficult. So the question might be, did we succeed? Well, 3,500 years later, we are still seeing an enormous, large number of people, millions of people, Jews, but even Islam, if one wants to count Islam as a monotheistic religion, as well, struggling and yet actually doing this, of taking the abstract and imagining that that God is not an idolatrous being, that we serve only idolatrously, but on the other hand not so abstract that He's not a viable force in life. So as Jews, we've done it. We've taken this book and therefore Torah is so pedagogically sound that we've taken this book and God becomes an Well, one might say, an operative, effective, powerful force in our lives, and has been so for the last three and a half thousand years. On the other hand, we haven't fallen into the pit of literalism by taking these verses literally. God does not literally have arms, eyes, nose, mouth, though He speaks in some fashion. So we've had our cake and eat it. It's a very difficult balance, a tense balance to create. It's done it we're still here. We still use this book in every which way as a force in our lives. So we've done it. Good. So let me ask the question. Which pasuk in the Tanakh actually captures this notion best? I pointed out a number of different occasions that if we look at the book of Melachim Aleph, chapter 8, page 728 in your Tanakh, in a very striking phrase that's so clear yet perplexing. Here, you'll see why, as we go along, why it's so perplexing. What's the context? The context is the dedication of King Solomon's Ben-Amikdash. So what year are we in? Good. Close enough. Remember, King David... Hold on. King David rules from the year 1000 to 120 for 40 years. 1000, sorry, 1000 to 960. King Solomon rules from 960 to 922. King Solomon builds for seven years. So we're in 953 before the common era. Right? For the first time, there's an attempt to build a sanctuary that's not traveling. Jews had a traveling sanctuary for the 40 years in the desert, and throughout the period of the Shoftim, 150 years, judges, throughout the period of (coughs) the Nevi'im, Shemuel, and David, and all of a sudden, there's a need for God to have a permanent dwelling place. Now, what's better? What would you say captures more what God's all about. A permanent dwelling place or a traveling sanctuary? Which would you prefer to have? What is better? What portrays what God is better? Yeah, or traveling. I think traveling. We have an argument going on over here. There's the Hatful and the McCoys. Civil War.
1: Permanent.
0: Shiites and Sunnis. It's scary. I'm in the middle. I don't think sides. Peacemaker. Peacemaker, right. Right, peacemaker. It's a great question, and it's a very difficult answer. Because what you really both are reflecting is the positive negatives of both. One might fear permanence because that leads to idolatry. It might be the case that once you have a permanent structure, you believe that God really is there and no place else. And yet, the teaching that we want to assert and affirm is God is all over. God's not limited to a place. God is in the innermost recesses of our own souls. If you could imagine that, God is within the soul, the heart, the mind, as well as external. God is both. It's a very so that's why it's very straight to say God's a being. I'm not comfortable with that. How God be a being and be in and out. By virtue of saying God's a being, I'm almost placing place as a tribute to God. God's not in a place. God is no place. But you need a place but you need a place to focus on. Good. <laughs> exactly. We're gonna talk about that human need. Excellent point. We're gonna talk about that human need in a few moments. So on the one hand, a place is important and yet it's limiting, I have to be fearful of it. So it's an important notion that for the first time, when we're going to put God in a place, a permanent sanctuary, in 953 before the common era, by King Solomon who certainly understood the pitfalls of place, and maybe he would have preferred to keep God in a traveling sanctuary, which gives us a sense of movement. Think about in the Naviyah Hiskil, where again God is portrayed, the first chapter, it's all about movement. It's a divine chariot. Movement is more important than place. <coughs> Pagans put God in a place. So by contrast, we want to see Boreolame as omnipresent, as every place, not one place, but every place. So Yeheskel sees God as a part of a divine chariot portrayal and traveling sanctuary midbar was always about movement, place. Once
1: they get established in the community, they don't want to travel. They want to have.
0: To. Okay, so the Jews. Remember, the Jews came out of Egypt in 1280 before the Comet Era. So. And one second, and. In to 960, they decided to build a Ben-Amikdash, King Solomon. So from 1280, for 40 years in the desert, they traveled, okay, traveling sanctuary. But in 1240, Joshua conquers the Canaanite nations. Then I have a period of of years of judges. Then I have Shemuel and David. So why was there no attempt prior to build a place? <laughs> and we have the answer to this question, really, because if you look at the place where... King David says, I'm building a place. What's God's reaction? We should be aware of this. It's an interesting chapter that was the um, 657 that I taught here maybe 27 years ago, 26 years ago, a series of classes on this topic where it's, it's a pivotal chapter that nobody appreciates. Nobody in the world, universe, galaxy, appreciates the the depth of this chapter. Look at the very first line of chapter 7. came to pass when King David, notice how the king is portrayed as Hamelech, the king, sat in his house. God has left him at rest with his enemies. The king says to Nathan the prophet, see now, I am sitting in a palace of cedar, but the Aaron, the Tabernacle, that small little closet of God, is only in a curtain. So, what does he want to do? So, Natan says to the king, Whatever's in your heart, go and do because God's with you. So, King David saw something inappropriate with King David, the king, in a palace. Where should God be? In a palace. Do you agree with David's reasoning or you see a flaw in it? Yeah? To make them equal. Exactly. Very good. And notice the way the Navi says the king. David sees himself now as the king. The king in his a bet arazim is in a palace. God should certainly be in a palace. So David says, "If I the king, anochi." What else does the word anochi ring loud? Ten commandments. Ten Anochi, Hashem It's a poetic form of I. It's almost the royal I. Anochi. What's the more humble I? Ani so anochi has a more poetically powerful connotation to it so anochi, live I live in a palace and the and but but the Aron of God is in a tent go to so even Natan seems not to have captured the point and therefore notice Pasuk for God's reaction that night the word of God comes to Natan not to David to Natan go and tell whom the king no what who my servant, David. So says God. You are going to build for me a bight that I should live in. Ha, ta! Look at this rhetorical question. Ha, ta! You're going to build a house for me. Six. Loish I never was in a bight. You were. I never was right. The day I took the Jewish people out of Egypt, to this very day, I was traveling with them in a tent and a sanctuary. Whenever I travel to Israel, did I ever say to one of the tribes that I commanded to be a shepherd of my nation? Why don't you build me a house? I want a temple. It's a powerful negation of what the king says.
1: Verse 8. Same words.
0: That's exactly the point. Correct. Be... Go tell. My servant, Avdi, David. So says, Nehashem Sevaot means what? It's an elliptical phrase, which means that it's a phrase which contains a hidden, non written word. Sevaot means all that is, all that was created. The translator usually has hosts. Here it's translated hosts. I never knew hosts meant. I know i go to your house, you're my host. Hosts, so
1: I don't know what that
0: called. meant. What does, what does it mean? So I found that it means the creator of all that is. The end all that is. So it means, it's like it means, Boreh God created, seva means armies. So it's the creator of all of the God's armies, all the angels. Creator of all that is. So it's the, used uniquely, not prior to, she, to David, in the book of Shemuel. And it's a reflection of God's power. So this means, so says Hashem who created all that is. I took you from the pastures, from behind the sheep, to be not a king, but a prince, a nagid, over my nation, Israel. I, was, I did all this, Hashem says. I was the one who was with you in all that you went, and I destroyed all of your enemies. You think not did I did it all. And I made for you a great name. And I placed you in the place over Israel. And I planted you I put you in this place. All of this. And in verse 11, From the day that I commanded the judges over Israel, and I left you at peace with all of your enemies, did God tell you to make me a house? I don't need or want a house. And again, right. Inappropriate to equate David's house need with Hashem. So all of that is Hashem's reaction. And because David said, I need to do this, you cannot do it. Because of that equation that was made. Therefore, you will die. You will sleep with your forefathers. I will then raise up a son who will come from you. I shall establish his malchut. He shall build a bite house because there's a need for it. Hashem appreciates the need. But not by you, who created the need, so to speak. So all of this goes on, right? Now what's David's reaction? To this? We all greet the rebuke. So the rebuke at the end culminates where David then, when you're 18, David, the king David goes out he says, and he sits in front of Hashem. He says, Who am I? Hashem Elohim. What's, who's my household? Goes, I'm nobody. 19. So David is shrunken. From the V king to later on to the servant, David says, "I got it. It's not for me." Good. So now King Solomon back to page 727, right? Now David has passed from the scene. King Solomon is now the king. and he's about he builds the bitDsh, 953 before the Common Era. right? 727, 728. And King Solomon has to capture this tension between human need and, quote, divine need. God needs not to be in a house. God needs for you to perceive Him as omnipresent, as moving, as in a a chariot. So therefore, look at the opening words, which I find to be so striking, of Pasuk 12. Then, upon the dedication of King Solomon, Page. 728, verse 12. Let's read the first Pasuk. Elliot, as so you're the wise man here? Oh, that, that's an interesting question. I don't know, so split you both in half and you both could read it. You
1: can start. If you're the wise, Elliot. I'm
0: older, that's all I can
1: say. So modest,
0: wow. What's striking about that verse? Well, let's read it in English. Ph.D. English. What you read it in English?
1: <laughs>
0: so what strikes you about this? And it's a good translation. Right? It's page 728, verse 12. Then King Solomon says, God has decreed, Amar, chosen, said, God has said, Amar, to dwell in a thick cloud. What does that mean? Where did God say, or choose, to dwell in a thick cloud? What does it mean, first of all? Hidden. Hidden, Hidden, unknown. God has chosen or said that I have to remain unknown. Why? Because God cannot become known. It's impossible to know God. God. You cannot know God, but you can experience God. You cannot know God, but you can experience God. So God has chosen and remains, and chooses to remain, Batefale in a deep cloud. So I have two questions regarding this. First of all, are you not surprised that I took this very significant notion, not from Bishet, but rather from Milahim Aleph? Is there any reflection of this in Torah? I'm very uncomfortable with making any point and trying to prove it from the book of Melachim, Aleph of which is relatively late. It's a major idea. God says to remain in a cloud, to choose to live in a cloud, unknown, unknowable. The desert, the whole time, with Sinai. Good. So one finds a reflection of this notion in two places. First of all, Har Sinai. If you look at ha in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, 18-19, 19 and 20, ha is all enveloped in a cloud. If you look at page 154, verse 16. On the third day, in the morning, thunder and lightning, and anan kaved alahad, a thick cloud on the mountain, and of course the powerful sound of the shofar. The people tremble. Moshe brings out the people to greet the God, Elohim, the you know the Lord from the Mahane. Again, emphasize in verse 18, Har Sinai is all Ashan. It's all a thick cloud of smoke. Because God came down upon it by ash. So God here is dwelling in a thick cloud. Impenetrable. One cannot know God. If you try to know God, all you come to is a cloud. So now if you look repeatedly down below, you'll find again and again that it's all about this envelopment of Har Sinai with the thick cloud, and the people have to be warned not to attempt to come too close and to penetrate the cloud. Here, presumably, crossing that boundary between human and divine results in death. One cannot know God and live. Who tried to know God? Well, Moshe... No, I would say Moshe. Nadav avihu. Moshe was told, you cannot know God. Moshe wants to know God's glory, so God is compassionate. You cannot know my glory, you cannot know who I am. But Nadav and crossed cross that line and they die. Right? So interesting in that context as well, so let's skip from Sinai and go to Vaikra to that context, Tet Zain, which is found on page 244. The two sons of Aharon cross the boundary on page 244, chapter 16, and they die. And what does Hashem say to Moshe? In verse 2 Tell Aharon your brother not to come whenever you choose into the holiness, on the other side of the curtain. If on the, to go see the Adam, to Kodesh and he will not die, when, Ki I will appear in a cloud, Anan as well. So God remains in a cloud, hidden, mysterious. So God chooses to remain in this fashion. Why? Well, if you were to say, because it's impossible for man to know God, so I'll ask you the next question. Can God do the impossible? If God chooses to let me know what he's all about, can he do so? So you think yes. So can God create a married bachelor?
1: Just <laughs> got to change the dictionary. You to change the terminology. No, that's
0: not fair. Can God create a square circle?
1: I think he could do anything.
0: So it, could God create a rock that he can't lift up? He
1: or Can God
0: us? create... No, we, yes, he could create the lift up, like any mountain. But he could, could do anything. So he could create he could create a rock. A question, he can create a rock that he can't pick up.
1: I've thought about
0: it. Well, well that's, what paying, that's what we're paying you here for—to think about it.
1: I think he could do anything. So
0: he could create a rock that he can't pick up. But if he, but he could do anything, then how can he not pick up the rock that he created? He could do anything.
1: Maybe he doesn't want to. No,
0: no, he wants to. Can, can he create a rock a
1: kryptonite.
0: besides kryptonite? <laughs> so nobody, nobody can handle that. that that's not fair. Even I can't handle kryptonite. Out of bounds. That's out of bounds, right?
1: So and that's if you stay within the boundaries of logic and language, then he obviously can't. What well, about the no mountain answer. slides? The rocks but falling down? I mean, he could do it. <laughs> he can't, but if he, again, this is what I'm saying. About literally picking it up because he's not
0: there. No, no. But can God, if he were there, can God make can God make himself human? Don't ask Christians that question. <laughs> You'd be in big trouble if you do, because I said God made himself human. So throughout the Middle Ages
1: these, these are contradiction, contradiction right. in terms. Right, right? So, correct. So but if you if you, as far as man is concerned can go, God can't cannot? Can can't span those contradictions
0: cannot make sense. so the medieval so the medieval approach would be God cannot do the impossible God would not cannot become human cannot not will not cannot become human therefore Christianity is nonsensical because God be, they say God became human God cannot become human and therefore God cannot create a married bachelor because that's a contradiction in terms God cannot create you cannot even raise the question can God create a rock that he can't pick up it's a, because what does that mean it's really a philosophical conundrum because or perplexing kind of an issue because if God can do anything, then He can create a rock that He can't pick up. But if He can't pick it up, then He can't do everything. So it gets you caught in a mess, in a tanglement of words.
1: Well, what about in prayer? In <clears throat> prayer, God could change or create
0: something? Not a contradiction in terms.
1: Contradiction,
0: no. Right. Contradiction in terms, He can't create a married bachelor.
1: Right, right. Hmm.
0: But that's the medieval answer, the Rambam and everybody else. The modern answer would say something very different. It's an interesting question because language changes over the course of a thousand years and we become more sophisticated in what language can do and the limits of language. So it's interesting how one of the foremost, we just said this um, yesterday in school, it was interesting to try to get seniors to understand this. One of the foremost contradictions about Hashem, about God, that we say every day in prayer, is the most famous one from Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, Hashem is Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. So what does that word Kadosh really mean? Most kids, of course, are all taught it means holy. No. They also have learned in Prashad Kedoshim that it means separate, distinct. A Torah is holy because it's separate Shabbat is holy because it's separate from the six days a synagogue is holy because it cannot do whatever you want of you holiness really means separate Kedoshim to you, to you separate so God is infinitely separate because it's Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh that's the biblical way using threesome that exaggerated form God is infinitely separate and yet what's the yet? Melchor God is all over the place so the question would be how could God be infinitely separate distinct and different and yet miochoka imminent the philosophical terminology is transcendent and imminent so how could God be both either he's transcendent kadosh or he's imminent within how could you both be both imminent and transcendent so we've always lived with that contradiction and yet We can even glory in it. And why is it such an important contradiction? Because it tells us that we cannot capture the essence of God. That's how Torah escapes the literalism of idolatry. Because we learn from the very beginning that God cannot be captured by our little words. Words do not capture it. So now, I tell the kids the story that you all know already, that one of the great modern Jewish philosophers, Abraham Heschel, I first introduce Heschel by the following story. When Sarah was at Columbia, she was once shopping on a Friday afternoon. You don't know the story, but they know the story. On a Friday afternoon, and she was that kind of kid that helps elderly people. So she's in the grocery store shopping, and um, an elderly, elderly woman says, Young lady, could you please help me carry this? you know, half a block, block the groceries. I really can't carry these two bags. Of course I will, no problem. So she carries them with it. Goes into the apartment of this old older woman, and the woman says, I see that you're reading Heschel's book, God in Search of Man, which is a brilliant, wonderful book, Philosophy of Judaism. God in Search of Man, Philosophy of Judaism. I see you're reading this book. She says, yeah, I really enjoyed. it. He's re- should you like. I really enjoy him. He really expresses ideas and thoughts. Fantastic personality. I really like him. And, Sarah tells him, he's our family cousin. Because Heschel is from the Bayana dynasty, Khazakh dynasty, Sarah's cousin. And the woman says, well, he was my husband. Oh, <laughs> True story.
1: Wow.
0: That's a wow story. Good story. Was it worth coming tonight? Got you out of bed for all this? Was it worth it? So the kids say, say wow. They said, wow. It's, it's, a, it's a true it goodbye smart. Mr. Chips kind of a story. Really very... We had been invited... When they over had a site for Avram Heschel, we were always invited. We met her at Mrs. Heschel and all that stuff. Okay. So what does Heschel say about this Kadosh Kadosh business? So Heschel says... God is not only infinitely transcendent and infinitely imminent, which we said already, God is infinitely transcendent in his imminence and infinitely imminent in his transcendence. What does that mean? It's kind of raising the bar, exploding the paradox to a uh, exponentially, exactly. God's not only, we all understand what it means to be infinitely transcendent and imminent. That's impossible, it can't be both. Good. So Hesha's, no, God is more than that. So he's taken language, and Hesha was a master of language. It's astounding how a person could have as his third or fourth language, Yiddish, German, um, Hebrew, and then English. And he writes, all his works are so phenomenally poetic. So phenomenally poetic, that he's able to say this, and he takes English, the language, and said, God is, not only Kadosh, but also God's infinitely transcendent in his imminence, and infinitely imminent in his transcendence, which means it's more than what we thought it was. He explodes exponentially that paradoxical statement, which of course the kids didn't really get. They were sitting there perplexed. They were very upset about it, because, what are you talking about? It's, like, go home, it's too much. But it's important sometimes for kids to be mystified. And I tell them as well, that when we do philosophy of prayer, we're going to read a, a rational philosopher's view of prayer, Elizabeth Berkowitz, for example, who deals with prayer philosophically and rationally and logically. And then we're going to read Heschel's book on prayer, man's quest, um, God's Quest... Man's Quest for God in his Philosophy of Prayer, which is all about experiencing prayer. Not analyzing it analytically and philosophically and logically and coherently, but Heschel is able to capture poetically the experience of prayer. And they're going to see which one relates most to them. When they decide they don't want to pray any longer, for philosophical reasons, they'll either at that point decide to read Heschel, hopefully, which will create the world where prayer makes sense, or Berkowitz we solves it philosophically. Okay, good. So paradox is really the essence of presenting God. And therefore you cannot present God in words. So then how do I present God? So the rabbis captured this in a brilliant phrase, Hachamenu, who said, Im et mi olam, this is the Sifra, the Rabbinic commentary of the book of ikra if you want to recognize God, study Agada. If you want to recognize who God is, I don't understand, but if you want to recognize who God is, study Agada. Now, what's interesting about Agada? This I had thought of, it's interesting, I thought of um, about um, when I was a uh, senior in college. Senior college, and they had asked me to uh, teach a course in philosophy at Stern College. I was just too young for it; I couldn't deal with it. But it was so. I thought of this as being part of my presentation: that what's great about Agada, Agada very comfortably, and you could tell us, any English literature do the same? Agada, which you know it is, rabbinic stories, narrative, comfortably holds paradox and teaches it. In other words, in Agada, you can read a narrative and it'll tell you A and non A and tell you all kinds of stories and all that. So they're really fanciful stories that just capture a flavor, an essence, a joy about life. And it's not logical or abstract or conceptual. It's a narrative. It's a story that has an idea, a motive to it, but it captures. Opposite stories. You have your story, have my story, and what happens? Then somebody says the stories contradict. Yeah, you have your story too. It's okay. It's one of those famous statements that you could, whatever truth you want, can be reflected in an agada. Agada is a wonderful form of literature. So, where do you have that in other, any other literature? What would you say is where we take a literature and you all, all literature?
1: attempts to capture the human experience, human uh, condition, and that is... Paradox? The human condition is paradoxical.
0: How so? Why so? On I don't think I'm paradox. I'm a paradox. Well,
1: well, on one hand, it's absurd. And on the other hand, it's What's
0: absurd about my life?
1: <laughs> because you... Not for this <laughs> <you, you laughs> born right. you live and you die. And that's
0: I don't know. Who said? Because hmm. everybody else did means we, I. Sorry. We're going gonna, to uh,
1: uh, take Hamlet. Okay, perfect example.
0: Midsummer Night's Dream, maybe. No, Hamlet. Okay.
1: <laughs> on one hand, he says, What a piece of work of man. And then he says, It's a quintessence of dust.
0: It's very. Uh, very uh,
1: existential. Very much like the Psalms. Right. So. He's torn. No. Because on life
0: is great and meaningless. Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing.
1: Right, right. Life is meaningful and meaningless at the same time.
0: Does everybody agree with Elliot about that? Mm -hmm. Or depends upon your mood, Sonia. Do you you ever think life is meaningless, or is always meaningful to you, or never meaningful to you, or don't answer the question if you don't want to (laughs) put you on the spot? Just say agree
1: with. (laughs) 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 That's that's (laughs) Saying a lot. It's (laughs) meaningful. I.
0: Was life ever meaningless to you? Meaningful, yes, because you have a wonderful family and people that love you and you love others. So that makes it meaningful. Was it ever meaningless to you? When would it theoretically be meaningless to you? Or anybody here? When when does life
1: seem absurd meaningless? When you get old and you're going to die. When your mother and your, your uncle conspired to kill your father, and then they marry each other. <laughs> That's, That's what happens and happens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an uncle or
0: uh, care that much <laughs> about me. in the state of Denmark. <laughs> right, something's in there. So that one was in Brooklyn, not here. I
1: think it's when you live your life, right. and then... And you, look back and you look back, and say,
0: what's it all about?
1: Right, because you know there's or, an end. Right. You know, to accomplish. An end. you know there's an end from other people that passed away. So I'm saying, that that's so, why it's meaningless. Right, you know that's what I mean. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, I
0: agree. So, one might experience meaninglessness of life when you experience...
1: Injustice.
0: No, not when, when, injustice. is Hold on for that. That's another issue. Hold on. Yes, hold on. When you experience personally, up front, somebody passing away that you love. And then you just feel, what's it all about? You know, you're so hurt, so deeply pained by that, People do say that you never really fully mature and appreciate what life's all about till you experience somebody dying. Because that means end. And then you really see finiteness. That means we feel it. And ironically, those whom we give birth to and love are going to experience the pain that we cause them by passing from this world. We don't want to cause our kids pain. Yeah, you know, we're going to cause our kids pain. Inevitably, we should be miserable it's parents. Fun. We be miserable it's parents, we, be miserable parents
1: right. have, we have to
0: make We do so. It's like the theory of the absurd. Over <laughs> here, just okay. Exactly. So, okay. So we buy what Elliot says that life is both meaningful moments. It's great. It's loving. It's meaningless as well. at Certain points in time. So,
1: but that's captured best in a. You say in the story, right? Narrative to, to capture that because
0: right. So Agadah captures that. Right, so Agadah Ag- 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 will capture that. Right, and Agadah captures therefore right. about God Himself all the aspects,
1: levels. In literature literature: we do this and don't do that. It's not going going to uh,
0: right, because that's exactly the opposite. Do this, don't do that. It's right. A or B. Can't be both A and B together. Right. So yeah, exactly. Good. So Agadah is an ama- amazing foil to halacha. Halachas do straight, narrow, black, white. Yes, no. Kosher, treif. Simple. Since
1: one is black and white.
0: In a in a certain theoretical sense, theoretically it's black and white. Rabbis or people make it, different opinions make it. Yes, maybe yes, maybe no. So it's not black and white in a real sense, in a human sense. But theoretically, there's one way. Ham and eggs is not kosher. Black and white. Shabbat, do this, don't do that. So theoretically, but there are different nuances, true, the gray area is true, but halachai is really, theoretically, This we have to function in a certain way, so There's you have to do it.
1: between reading a, uh, a legal document, right. a contract,
0: mm-hmm. and... Uh... Some piece of poetry. Good, so Agadah captures, Agadah's poetic, and it captures all these paradoxes about Hashem, about God, and... Going back to over here, so King Solomon captures very well that statement, that though I am now limiting God by putting him in a house, which God never wanted to be in a house, but God really prefers being a moving, traveling sanctuary, nevertheless, I built for you a sanctuary, we have a need for a sanctuary, but I am going to also say, that I am aware that I cannot capture you in this fashion. And therefore, King Solomon says in this most memorable statement, God has decided, has chosen, has said to live in a dark clouds, impenetrable. We can't really capture what God's all about. God is both Im- imminent, transcendent, integrated. What does all that mean? We can't capture God in rational terms and logical terms. And then King Solomon says, look at please at 27 is it possible for God to dwell on the land he near on page 729 behold the heavens and the heavens upon the heavens cannot contain the O God certainly certainly not the house that I have constructed so I built you a house a big house a huge house but it's irrelevant it's meaningless because the heavens and the heavens upon heavens cannot contain God. So interestingly enough, 3,000 years ago, King Solomon had that perception of God being much grander than anybody would thought. No pagan ever wrote this kind of a line. For pagans, God lives in a house. Simple. Yet King Solomon had made the statement, and again, it's underappreciated, that God had said, I want to dwell in the cloud, reflecting Har Sinai, reflecting the Yom Kippur experience, when I don't get come into the sanctuary, I will appear in a cloud. You can never penetrate the cloud. I build a house containing you, limiting you, boundaryizing you, and yet, I am aware, King Solomon says, can God dwell on the land, The heavens and the heavens upon the heavens cannot contain God, certainly not this house. Small, insignificant, tiny. So, the very first lesson that one learns from Bereshit is that Bereshit is that which tries to capture the uncapturable by portraying God in a certain way even though we know that that way that we try to portray and capture God is really not going to work. So we have to raise the question what is really the goal of Torah itself? Is it to make Hashem more accessible? Or you might say tikkun olam to make the world a better place. What does the Torah really want to do? Or a combination of both what's the goal of this book? From thirty five hundred years ago, it's given thirty five hundred years ago. Torah, five books. What was the goal? What was the intent?
1: And we read it today,
0: and do what with it? Just read it, learn, learn it for what purpose? For what end? To live a to live a with life. right? So this is meant to live a decent life within with human society with others. Let's assume that's what it is. So
1: therefore, that we just have a how to book. <laughs> this is the way you good. life, okay? Um, good. Okay, okay good the, question. Uh, what's the uh, you know the, uh, you the, we, no, the 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 newspaper, uh, the journalist who uh, used to write the article about how, you know, what way you should put your fork and your knife and... etiquette book. etiquette
0: book. Emily Post.
1: Emily Post.
0: Is that Emily Post? No, it's yeah. just etiquette. There's a lot of things no, I'm Attica. just saying, what, why to don't we have...
1: To have to we take God <laughs> out of the picture. Well, she, we um, life. Life. Right, so that's the question. We, we take God out of the picture, and now we just have, you know, Right, you know.
0: so the question over here would be, good, would be...
1: I'm setting you up
0: good, okay, it's <laughs> point four. good, okay. So, I would then raise the question, based on Eliot's question, what do we need to know about God to establish that proper society, or do we need God at all? Assuming we cannot understand God... Do we need God at all? What do we have to know about God? What do we need to know about God? We can't know God, and our goal was not to know God, impossible. So what role could God play? He wants to be Ba'arafil. He wants to be in that cloud. So, what do we need to know about God to establish that society? So, therefore, what I would say now is that, yes, there are certain Elements, aspects of God that we need to know about—not that what, what God is—we'll never know. We cannot capture what God is. But there are certain aspects of what God is, if one could say that, with treading on thin ice, we talk anything about God, is in order to create that harmonious, messianic Garden of Eden society, and we would, we would. Probably argue that the first four chapters of Bereshit gives us a brilliant, conceptual, yet capturable picture as to what God is. So let's go over these five principles. Number one, we need to know that God is the creator. Not because we care about God as a creator, but because I care about God having absolute power to do as he pleases. Now, why would that be important? Why should I know that God is El Shaddai, the Creator of the universe? What good does that do me? Why does society need to know that God has power? Yeah. Okay? So I could punish you for you wrong. Okay, good. So let's hold on to that point because that comes later. So we know that God has absolute power. Number one.
1: There's no one beyond Him, also. Right. So there's no one else to answer to. Therefore, God on is term, the. Not in terms of sin, but in terms of, of you know, the lessons that.
0: Good. God is a source of values. Right.
1: An ultimate source.
0: Right. God is the ultimate source of all values, of proclaiming right and wrong. We don't have a notion of relativity of ethics. Ethics, values are raised here in Torah throughout all kinds of narrative and. We should be able to discern right from wrong, based on these values. There was a great Charlie Rose, fantastic last week. The Stanley Schwartz recorded for me.
1: Because I watch him. Professor,
0: watch him. Oh. you watching? have heard of. Him. Oh. Professor of philosophy at Harvard, Michael Sadler, wrote a book called Justice. He has a thousand kids in his class, the most popular class at Harvard. Fourteen thousand people taking this class, and he raises the question about right and wrong. So he raised this very famous uh, ethical dilemma that I raised in a series of class we had during the summer on ethical dilemmas. So he got it from me. That's, that's straight. straight. So he raises a question. You're on a trolley. The trolley is heading straight ahead. It has five workers now working on their tracks. And you're going to plow into them and kill all of them. Only that works, your brakes don't work. only that works is your steering wheel. And now you notice know you could Turn your steering wheel and kill one person, rather than the five. So he asked this class of a thousand students at Harvard. It's really a great Charlie Rose. I'm telling you, I recorded. I'm going to show it to my class in school. He's a professor of philosophy and raised this ethical dilemma: How many of you would plow into the five, and how many of you would turn right and kill that one person?
1: How many I, both. How many How many five? Sorry? So they, How many people would do one?
0: No. Every. 90% said kill the one, not the five. Okay. Then one person gets up and says no, because that justifies genocide. That we're going to kill, f- save, we're going to save the many for the few. And he, 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 he said, I'm not trying to explain it. So he said that that justifies genocide. Now what would be the Jewish answer to this dilemma? That's an interesting question so in our summer class we spoke about these ethical dilemmas all ten of them we spoke about every week in this shul and the other shul in, in Rabbi Dweck's shul we provided these kinds of questions philosophical dilemmas and the Jewish answer to those questions
1: figure out a way to stop the train
0: <laughs> that would be a, yeah that's a, a good Jewish answer right well, unfortunately what it's what not what part of the scenario the <coughs> sorry
1: what if you were the survivor and one was killed
0: if you were the survivor of what? in
1: other words if you said uh, one got and no, the, the one, no, the one... one the one, on oh, right. the side, five is front
0: of you. Right, right, so right. But, but when I raised the question, I raised it differently. I said, the one is your child, your kid. So I made it a little bit more difficult. No choice, there's no left. That's your choices. So it's a real tough question. What do you do when you find that? So that's what philosophers are paid to deal with. To analyze all these issues. Mm-hmm. So Charlie Rose interviewing this president, and such a famous course in the book that just came out, called Justice. So he analyzes all these issues, and he, and he wants the kids to start thinking ethically and reasoning rationally, and reasoning ethically to develop their ethical sense as to the rights and wrongs of all these issues. Torah so is the same way. So, in that kind of a question, we have to answer it halachically morality ultimately is a halakhic question. Do you pull the plug or not in bioethical dilemmas? Same dilemmas, do you pull the plug or not? You have a person who's on, and we gave this case three, four weeks ago, who is has Lou Gehrig's disease. He's a young man of 38, true story, 38 years old, Lou Gehrig's disease. He's suffering terribly in the hospital. He begs to die. <coughs> he begs to die. Dr. Coulon, you're right. He has a... And he catches pneumonia. He now can be administered an antibiotic, which means he'll live six more months in agony. Those who don't know what Lou Gehrig's disease is—it's um, ALS, it's called—and uh, it's ALS. and it cannot—you cannot move. It's a neurological; you cannot move <laughs> a muscle. When I had visited him, he couldn't blink an eye. Cannot blink. It's—it's it's being trapped with full. It's really the, the cruelest disease you can imagine. Emily had said, "She's petrified," and we all are of that disease because you're trapped in your body you have full mental facilities and you cannot move at all, you can't blink in eyes, it's it's very very difficult so he wants to die and he captured and he now has pneumonia and doctor calls and says if we administer antibiotics he lives six more months if we don't he dies in three days, what should we do? his mother says please let him go he wants to go
1: But how do the doctors know that he wants to die? He cannot. What
0: he left earlier, when he was able to uh, blink.
1: But when he was able to blink, he never experienced the state that he is in now.
0: It's worse. (laughs) It's worse. Right, but... did he change his mind? Finality. What
1: if what q- you could uh, rediscover different values if you put him under such circumstances? And there's a reason
0: for everything. As far as we know, what and the, q- I, the doctors, I would did. say, just looked at him. I mean, I mean, you just look at him, and, and the agony is so profound. And even assuming we don't know, what does halacha say? Because that happens also all the time. What well, halacha say if the person didn't leave? the last will? What do we do halakhically? And you have to have an answer to this question. If he did leave a will. And he did leave a will. No, because then Anne is right. Maybe he changes his mind. People will all say, I don't want to live as a paraplegic. But maybe you know when you're that, you say, okay, I still want. That's you know there are cases that way. I don't want to change. Where people will say, I never want to live this. When when Michael Averbach was in that. Was Michael or Michael's yeah. brother?
1: How about
0: yeah. So he, and he, I was in Israel when it happened. And a visit in the hospital and, and he had absolutely no desire to live at that point because you know, because he was apparently as a big husky guy that did everything. as and he, he fell on a bomb and a bomb in a bus. In a bus, right. He fell on the bomb and he was No,
1: he threw himself. He threw
0: himself the right, <laughs> you know, right you know what I mean, he threw himself on the bo- <clears throat> on the bomb. And had, at that first week or so, he had no desire to live. But now it's six, seven years, six years later, his kids are growing, as four kids. So, it's a different story. So, one perhaps might change one's mind. But these bioethical dilemmas also have to be solved. Dr. Shamash calls, certain situations, calls me, What do we do in this case? And, you know, there's a person that doesn't want to live. They don't want to live any longer. They have a cancer. And then they, we could do a surgery and we could, we could prolong his life, comfortable life, good life, you know, in that particular case. But the wife said, I don't have to suffer. And so, what do you do? I mean, so these ethical dilemmas upon parcel of daily life for a physician. Bioethical dilemmas, as ethical dilemmas. So, coming back to over here, we have values. We have halachic answers revolving around these values. So therefore, we have statements. A, God's the creator, all-powerful. Two, God's the source of all of our values. And therefore, God should be able to tell us the right, the wrong, the answer to all these bioethical and other ethical dilemmas that are raised. We also learn that God commands in Garden of Eden. We follow and learn that God is the mashkiach, God is the one who supervises the world. We find that in Garden of Eden as well. We find as well that God punishes when you transgress. And we find that therefore God is the guarantor of the moral system. With the power to enforce a system that He has given us, so all this comes together in the first three chapters. God is Creator, God is all-powerful, God as the source of values, God as He commands. He commands the Garden of Eden: "Don't touch." And it's interesting that it's the issue of the Tree of Knowledge, not to touch. That's an interesting dynamic in and of itself, not to be spoken about right now. God's who punishes, and God's the guarantor, ultimately, of the moral system and the power to enforce it. And then we come to, finally, what happens with Cain and Havel. So here, interestingly enough, God does not command Cain to not kill Havel. And there are those who will raise the question, so why should Cain be held responsible for murdering his brother? Because he wasn't told. So, obviously, the Torah in chapter 4 is asserting that we are supposed to have a certain kind of moral intuition. That kind is held responsible because he's supposed to know that it's wrong to kill. So, we do find that there is a certain moral order to the universe and that ultimately you are responsible to that moral intuition. Either based on reason or base it on intuition, or say it's embedded in the natural order. However, one views, and philosophers have discussed it the last thousand years, this natural moral law. That's what seems to be the case, at least in Bereshit 1, 2, 3, and 4. And finally, the last point
1: is... So there's a natural law that is separate from God?
0: Or God created that natural law. I don't know if we... Yeah, I don't know if I want to put it separate from God. It's what? If there is a right and a wrong, well, then, an absolute that God created as part of the natural order. So I'm not I'm sure... As
1: opposed to commanding it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's interesting because a reflection of that would be...
1: We should have an internal moral compass. Right. That's God put
0: in... Well, I, that's one formulation. How does what you just said fit into, let's say, the statement in Vaikra, 19, Lutet, which talks about People who violate, interestingly enough, sexual morality in all of those um, list of abominations. Sexual in 19. And what happens? What's the result of that? The, in 18, the land will spew you out. It's almost as if that, that natural morality is part of the physical world in the same way, asserting in the same way that there is physical laws of nature, gravity, electromagnetism, four natural laws of nature. There's also a moral law of nature and that one cannot violate the physical law of nature of gravity. You can't jump off a building, it's to not fall down. You cannot violate the natural laws of gravity. So too, you, can you not violate the moral laws embedded in the natural order. And the same way that if you try to violate the natural law by jumping off a building, you're punished by going down, hitting the ground. So too, there's a physical reaction in Israel that if you violate the natural law of morality, what happens if you look, not well, it's very late, so I just want to end right now, page 290, where it says over here, do not pollute the land through this sexual abominations. Because what happens in verse 25 on page 290, if you pollute the land, not with idolatry, but with these sexual aberrations, perversions, and the pagans were famous for these aberrations and these perversions, what happens? You are spewed out, spit out, vomited out from the land. The land cannot contain these kinds of abominations and perversions. So you do it, the land almost naturally, not God, the land naturally vomits you out. They're you are exiled.
1: They're commanded, though.
0: They are. Who's they?
1: The perversions.
0: Okay, well, You're
1: commanded not
0: to. the pagans were not commanded it, and if they're part of this as well, look at the, all these verses tell you, do not pull yourself with all these." Because with all of these perversions, I
1: understand, understand. So
0: they weren't commanded, except for this natural intuition or whatever we're going to say.
1: So well, here, it's it's clear that God is commanding you not to.
0: You, what about the pagans? Were the pagans commanded directly? Did not do this? No. And yet it says the whole with all of these abominations these pagans were polluted right. and I'm sending them out and the land became polluted and I took note of the sin and the land spewed out, spit out, vomited out all of its inhabitants. Don't let it happen to you, it happened to them. So it's almost as if the land of Israel at least it's called the land of Israel had absorbed those that pollution and just naturally spit you out.
1: But well, why should they be held accountable if they weren't commanded?
0: Because it's part of the natural order. These sexual abominations, not idolatry, child, human sacrifice, child sacrifice is one of them. And all the other perversions. Okay, so it seems to be, that's, and again, it's not a, an easy question because again, philosophers argued for a thousand years about that particular question. Natural order, command order, heteronomic law, whatever it may be. So at the end we have these five principles That God is creator, all-powerful, commander, supervisor of this creation. He cares about what goes on. And he punishes the violators of that, either God's commandment by Tzaveo in God Eden, or Cain as well is punished because he violated the implicit natural moral law. Does God forgive? Do we find that God forgives? Is that part of these first four chapters? The answer to that question will be, Next week. <laughs> Next week is November third. November third, I'm doing a treatment, so we won't meet Tuesday night, but Monday night. night? If that's okay with you. Yeah. Monday night. Monday night. Yes, because I just can't meet Thursday, Tuesday night, but Monday night's good. You gotta finish your food.
1: Sorry. That's game five. Let's try
0: and figure it out. A TiVo. I told
1: you
0: TiVo. That's okay. It is the same. What are you talking about? Yeah. Be, be optimistic. Right, thank, you. thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. <laughs>